Welcome, everyone. This is a brief history of power. Colonel Willie Grills, Dr. Adam Kuntz, and we're continuing our discussion of superiority of the air. Adam, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. I'm here. How's the weather? (laughs) As you can see, it's kind of blindingly (laughs) sunny. Yeah, it is. (laughs) I have kind of a crime noir thing going on here. We need to pan for some shekels for some shades for you there, my friend. Yeah, I I like the the bright sunlight. No, you need vitamin D. I think, you know, you guys are out there, you're all depressed. It's because you don't get into the sun enough. (laughs) I am a doctor. For some, for some, for some, it's, you know, it's just not an opportunity that presents itself, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's very nice right now. How, how about you? I had to put the AC on for a minute yesterday, uh, but <laughs> that's but it, a little, <laughs> but it's, it's back to kind of cold today. So don't okay. worry. Okay. We're all, we're all going to get, you know, very sick soon. So we're just waiting for spring to get here, you know, even though it hit the seventies. Is there a seasonal effective disorder thing for places where the seasons don't change enough or just don't change? I mean, it's, I think that's you know. why everybody's borderline feral, you know, uh, that's all it is. <laughs> you know, it's funny, you know, uh, the, the seasonal effective disorder. I don't know if I believe in that or not, because I, I can get pretty cozy in the snow. I can get yeah, comfy, certainly company in, in, in the fall. But, uh, you know, I don't know, you know, you build a fire in the winter and you, you read a book. It's really not that bad. You guys need to, you know, try it out. Yeah, I, I think I do think the Scandinavians are onto something with the notion of being hookah and that uh, if it's cloudy and dark and cold that, you know, if you just put some more candles in your life and some wood burning in, in some fashion, everything would be 20 times better. So. Yeah, naturally. I mean, the Scandinavians are the happiest of people for some reason. If <laughs> you know, you this. would you would never know it. You would never know it. They're they're not going to make a big deal out of it. They would but never yeah, allow you to see it. You know. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, they're very they're they're a contented people, just right. happy. Right. Speaking their speaking their language, whatever it is. <laughs> we don't we don't understand <laughs> it. It's related to Swahili, I think. I don't know. <laughs> right. It's kind of like how Finnish is just Japanese. If you learn one, you're already good. Right. Um, yeah, that's what I understand. I mean, also, too, on fins, I'm just not, you know, they exist. I've seen them out in the wild, but <laughs> with their saunas. So uh, before before we alienate three quarters of the audience, let's uh, let's oh, talk a little it, bit about what we're going to get into today. So. Yeah, that, that's already been accomplished. And, and the fins are, are actually kind of a nice segue because they have a role in World War II that is is like unto a lot of this technology that we'll discuss today as we talk about Germany's search for aviation superiority and even the the very beginnings of space flight the first picture taken from outer space was taken by a, from a german missile is that like the fins this kind of works to the advantage of both sides at various times in the second world war or because of the second world war and i will do my I will do my utmost not to spurg about small arms of each uh, of each military that we're going to talk about today. Yeah, no, that's I mean, I, so you'll have to keep me on a short leash. Yeah, that. that's I think that's fine because that's. That is part of Germany's search for. The, the aviation, the aeronautic stuff is is all of a piece 
in in its reason, in its need, with small arms development, with certain other things that their infantry or their tanks are going to be using. Yeah, and you know, your World War Two is such a different animal from World War One, right? And while uh, you know, we can argue that World War One changed the world in a way that I don't think we can really fathom. I think that's something that had to be experienced. Right. You know, you go from, I mean, World War One. you've got gas, you've got, but you've got a lot of traditional weapons. You still have mounted cavalry. It's such right. an interesting mix of the two. And then we're really seeing the modern world in World War Two. And in a lot of ways, we've not changed. I mean, a lot, a lot of the things that would become standard military equipment, protocol, whatever, that we get that in World War Two. Right. Or at least the beginnings of it in World War Two. Right. So, with that said, I think what we're so war pushes innovation. I don't think we would have seen the advances in technology had war not come about. So right. let's let's begin the discussion with that. Yeah, and that's the basic relationship that we want to observe here is that in the previous couple of episodes, we saw a lot of speculation. We saw a lot of early development, even along civilian lines, like we mentioned with the NACA in the United States, the predecessor to the NASA, also called NASA. But what really steps technological development way up is always going to be war. And that relationship between war and technology is something that if you are just thinking of the military industrial complex as as just about money. I, I think I think probably from a human material perspective, it is primarily about money. From a larger historical perspective, that amount of change and innovation and novelty only comes about through either war or or the threat of war. and And we'll talk about that a little bit later with some of the some of the some of Germany's aeronautical innovations happened because they feared essentially as soon as Hitler came to power and they started just breaking their treaty obligations <laughs> they feared that there would be war or that they would need to prosecute war that kind of depends on your your reading of their motivations and their plans and there's plenty of room for debate about what the Germans might have done if left to their own devices without some of the international pressures that they had. But either war or the threat of war is really what pushes technological innovation to go, I, I would say, into, into hyperdrive because without that, without that threat or without that reality, they really have no need to develop the kinds of things that they will on all fronts. So it, it's perfectly fine if you know you want to talk for probably not 25, but, but, but maybe 10, 15 minutes about, about some of the small arms stuff, because it's, it's, it's only different in the realm of technology that it's being applied. The phenomenon of incredible innovation or incredible change within all kinds of realms is common to a nation that like Germany is not only has the threat of war looming over it in the thirties and then is out war, but also, whenever it goes to war in both world wars, is always surrounded. And so if they themselves don't innovate technologically, they cannot 
replace that lack of innovation with enormous supplies from overseas, you know, supporters. It's it's either they figure it out or no one does. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're going to see uh, Germany being a little bit innovative in World War One, particularly in regards to handguns. They're going to keep using the Mauser rifle as their general issue rifle, which is a, a fine bolt action gun, but they're also going to be uh, developing on other fronts. You know, that you're going to see um, also Germany as they begin to conquer parts of Europe, tool up factories in, say, France and Italy for their own purposes. And so finding designs that they like, which are innovative for the time, you know, usually semi-automatics of, of some of some kind. They moved away from like the Reich's revolver, those kinds of things. For people in the gun culture, I think the most notable small arm that they come up with, the most innovative, and people often forget this, is the Sturmgewehr, which is the first what we'll call assault rifle. Uses an intermediate cartridge, capable of automatic fire, uses a, a gas system that's, you know, akin to, or that will develop into, regardless of if our friends in Russia want to believe it or not, but it will, it is the, the basis for what becomes the AK 47. Yeah. And that's, and it, although it doesn't see widespread use, it becomes the blueprint for what a battle rifle will be to the modern day. Yeah. Right. Intermediate cartridge, semi-automatic. You can't say lightweight, although they tried, I mean, not light, lightweight by world war two standards when you see what people were lugging around, but they see, you know, they start to think, Hey, Maybe if we don't need giant hunting cartridges in our uh, in our rifles, which wasn't a hunting cartridge at the time. Remember, the things that you're hunting deer with now, a lot of them were, to, or at least some of the the legacy cartridges were developed to, you know, kill men. Uh, but th- all that aside, you know they they set a blueprint. I mean, we the Allies come in after winning World War II and scavenge a lot of this and see a lot of what Germany did. And say, hey, this this really works quite well. We're going to do that. Now it took yep. a couple of decades for America to realize that, but it, it's what ends up happening. Even things like tanks, you come up to tanks, things like submachine guns, which America would use and were using uh, to a small degree in World War One, and you would see um, really brought to the fore in World War Two, especially with some German designs. Those fall out of favor by the 80s but you know they set the blueprint for what a modern military will have can you talk just briefly about this idea that the Sturmgewehr had relatively limited usage because that's that's a refrain we're going to hear with some of the aviation stuff yeah as well what why why limited usage yeah it, particularly because of one maintenance manual of arms two it has its own unique cartridge the manual of arms you have to retrain, and we're not even into production yet, you know. But manual of arms is very different from the standard bolt action rifle that, right? It, you know, that's what's standard issue for your Germans. That's what they're used to. A proprietary cartridge, which is hard to tool up for. You don't have large stores of ammunition, and something that was seen as harder to maintain, which you know was true in the case of the Sturmgewehr. It's they're working the kinks out while feeling the weapon is really what's going on there. You're talking about such a sea change from bolt action, large cartridge to intermediate cartridge, semi-automatic, or excuse me, automatic and um, 
and just a totally different way of thinking. You know, you have to issue a lot more ammunition when you're using a rifle like that. Mm -hmm. They're not, they don't have the capability to tool up and make that much ammo. There's a debate over, yeah, but five big cartridges versus 30 intermediate cartridges. What does that mean? Uh, you know, if we give a magazine full of this intermediate ammunition to our soldiers, they're just going to be spraying. Mm -hmm. So then there's economy involved. There's a lot more left. Okay, now we have to field magazines. What do we do with that? That's another manufacturing thing you have to figure out. Um, eventually, post-World War II, militaries will come to say, see that as, okay, this is this makes more sense. This is more suitable for what we're doing. And they were able to understand magazines as basically disposable. That was not really how they thought in any military up until that point. Magazines were disposable, but they weren't issued in the way that uh, a stripper clip, for example, would be that you would use to charge your Mauser or an in-block clip that you would use to charge your M1 in the case of, in the, case of the American troops. So, so it took a lot of time for the old brass to see this was the way of the future. They're bumming up against an old way of economizing a military. And I think that that has a lot more to do with it. Yeah. Logistically, it's a problem, but economy, they just couldn't see this. You know, they couldn't see handing some grunt a ton of ammunition because you move to a smaller cartridge and then you're carrying a lot more ammunition, but you're talking about a, a firearm that's capable of expending a lot more ammunition. Right. And so you, you take that over into things like rocketry and jets. Well, you know, these are these are very capable weapons, but they're also very expensive to produce, right? Right. Yep. Yeah. And and so that's just what you end up with. Right. We don't have military spending like we do today, which is essentially an open tap, at least in America, right? They don't really count the cost of things. And so they were much more frugal, I guess you would say. And you had to be. I mean, America's not as, as rich. America's not as rich as she would be. Germany is still recovering from World War One, and most militaries in Europe are not are not ready for this. That's right. Uh, America. I know we're talking about Germany. America is just unique because they're able to field a semi-automatic weapon as standard issue, as far as a long arm goes. When essentially no other military was, no other large military was at the time. We issued in World War One standard issue a semi-automatic handgun, but we were not ready for a semi-automatic rifle until World War Two. So the great 1911 America's pistol is a product of World War One, right? Yeah, and it, it's it's interesting that the development of night vision optics, which the Germans also do, mm -hmm. um, America's doing independently yeah. um, during World War II, but does not issue. Right. The Germans are able to do that, but everything that they do, no matter how innovative or brilliant, and they, they have good results with those night vision optics on the Eastern Front, which you need to remember when you're thinking about World War II is the main battle theater is the German yeah. the Germans against the Soviets. But they simply cannot logistically corral the resources and then the production and then the distribution of these things to gain the advantage from these innovations that you might imagine. Right. So underneath technology. And we, and we field, yeah, we field the M1 carbine with a night vision capable optic in a very limited basis. Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, it's typically in Japan. Yes. And uh, that's right. And, yep. 
which is very cool to think that we're that we're doing that then but it just the the resources weren't there to mass produce those things right yeah but we have i mean it's it's kind of odd for us to think about having electronic optics which is something that we don't really see until very very recently as far as as, as widely fielded right. um but we had them all the way back then it's kind of like it's kind of wild to think you know we had drones in vietnam right for example yep yeah yeah, we had night vision and drones, just not with the same distribution, right? Yeah, and that's just what you bump into. It's a, I think a lot of it's economy. I think the forward-thinking Germans especially, especially when you look at the Sturmgewehr, and it seems like we're spending a lot of time just on that one weapon, but <laughs> I, I mean, it is it is what it is. Yeah. And uh, Palmetto State Armory allegedly uh, releasing the reproduction of it this year, by the way, for those of you who are getting, you know, who are filing your taxes right now and eagerly awaiting a return, <laughs> You might be if you hold on to that, you might be able to get a repro, a repro uh, this year. So it's an awkward gun, though. It's a clunky gun. But yeah, they're very cool. And you, you always hate to see, you know, occasionally some cities doing a gun buyback and they get a hundred dollar, you know, Wendy's gift card or something for Grandpa's bring back Sturmgewehr. And you know, and we all get sad for a few days when we see it. Is this a city mostly populated by Missouri Synod Lutherans or? That it could that Grandpa Stormgiver is just you know sitting around the attic or it's just there yeah they they, okay. they they tossed his war medals ten years ago and they've still got this old thing sitting around let's just see what we can get out of it <laughs> you know and people people are going to come in and say well what about the Thompson and what about this like well we're talking about Germany you know and and the Thompson is is um is an interesting one everybody thinks of the Tommy gun but. And it was fielded in World War One in limited capacity, fielded in a greater capacity in World War II, but it's a very it's simplified by that time. And it is technically a submachine gun, something that would fall out of favor relatively quickly in military history, as I've already mentioned. But it's still very now that's and that's a very different thing from what you're feeling. Even in the case of America, who is fielding a semi-automatic rifle, they are fielding a 30 out six, eight round capacity big rifle, heavy rifle. And some people are issued machine guns or submachine guns, which are going to shoot pistol rounds. It's just a very interesting thing. So even, even where in a discussion like this, where we're saying, okay, Sturmgewehr doesn't make it because in part because of standardization, there is still a wide variety of things that are fielded on both the Axis and allied fronts that we don't think about. It's it. They're, they're thinking about economy but things are also much less standardized than they are today. Yes. In certain parts. Yeah. And that, yeah. that has to do with manufacturing too. Sometimes you're issued what was available. You know, why 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 do I end up with a Beretta 32 caliber? You know, why do I end up with a Beretta 1935 and I'm a German? How does that happen? Because we have the factory now and it's a pretty good gun. So that's what you get. You know, why why does this guy get a Luger? Because he's, you know, he's higher ranking than you. And and these were available here. And so, you know, Germany is forced to uh, take some things out of mothballs as well. So it's different from where you're seeing innovation, rolling things out as they can, but again, sort of field testing on the fly in a lot of cases. Right. And you see some really wacky things too. Germany's one of their rifle, one of their guns that they're going to use to shoot into, uh, into tank turrets, for example, are it's it's a barrel that almost bends to 90 degrees for example uh you know just there's some wacky stuff out there too 
like I think everybody at this point knows about bat guided bombs and things like that that we tried and some other you know, we were just seeing what stuck. We we're just throwing yeah. it out there. Right. Yeah. And and that is characteristic of the aeronautical side of this too. And, yeah, and again, you wouldn't see that if there wasn't a war going on. Right. Or or, or rumors of war anyway. Right. Because what you're going to get is in the case of a jet engine, which a lot of people don't know, Germany actually produced uh, jets towards the end of the war, the Messerschmitt 262, but they're developing these things roughly 10 years before that. They don't invent a lot of these things. The thing that marks them off is the unique way that they're willing to push the envelope in order to get something actually functioning, someone actually using it. The difficulty they always run into at that point is supply of jet fuel or or capacity to reliably reproduce parts. So with the jet engine, for example, they take something that is essentially invented, as it were, possibly by a man named Frank Whittle, who's British, if you can tell from that last name. And what the Germans do in the mid-30s under the leadership of a guy named Hans von Ohain is that they they take Whittle's insights and inventions and see how far this is from particularly our first episode with the Russians, where <laughs> the, the Russians are dreaming lots of things. And Tsiolkovsky is, you know, shooting rockets essentially in his backyard in the 20s and 30s. But otherwise, they're not really doing a lot of things. The Germans would be in this way kind of the opposite of the Russians. They move extremely quickly from theory to practice. It, but once they can produce a jet engine in the mid 30s, they can't really get that into any kind of airplane production with the very limited resources that they have. Remember, Germany's allies are very distant, like Japan, or they are relatively impoverished and have a low level of industrial production, like Italy, or they don't have a lot to offer in the way of natural resources, like Austria, which is eventually, you know, technically part of the Reich after after the invasion of Austria, the Anschluss. So mm -hmm. they once they their only option, unlike America, which has <laughs> all the natural resources we can want and, and an undisturbed continent, okay, to work with. And if we want something and we don't have it, probably the Canadians have it, right? Unlike us, uh, they can just they they have to figure out how to put something into production they they rarely get that far. Mm -hmm. So there's this absolute multitude of invention with relatively little capacity to put things into production. And that's where I think when you think about particularly aviation technology is such a great example of the immensely high requirements materially and financially and industrially to bring something from the drawing board into reality and then from reality into general use. And those stages of development are what are so hard for the Germans. Whereas for the Americans, we might not be as inventive and certainly we don't have the same pressures on us. But if we want to bring something into production, at least in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in the next installment of this, but if we want to bring something into production, it's almost we're like a rich kid, like daddy will just <laughs> right. write a check. The, the Germans are impoverished by comparison. And no matter how inventive they are, this is why 
probably of all the technologies that w- that we could talk about today, you've probably only heard of the guided missiles, yeah, um, and the long range ballistic missiles because that's really all that of all the things we could mention they got into widespread usage in the war. Yeah, and uh, you know, I think culturally we have to look at that. You know, to go back to the Wright brothers, America's spirit of innovation—that's that—that's still there in the American culture. You mentioned Canada. You know, it's a little embarrassing how much we relied on Canada uh, for some of our <laughs> World War II tech. Russia is a very that's, interesting they're one. Yeah, they're embarrassed ahead. too. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, but but enough about the M1 rifle. But uh, the uh, <laughs> Russia is interesting because they're fighting with what's going to. It's borderline antiquated equipment at the time. Yeah. Uh, with the exception of maybe the Tokarev pistol, which it, any, with anybody with any firearms knowledge can see, it looks like they captured a 1911 and Soviet re-engineered it. They made it simpler and uh, put it in a really cool cartridge, which I think is more by accident than anything because it's the same caliber as their rifle. And so they're just trying to, you know, we're talking about economy, right? So they're, you know, yeah. same machinery can be used for certain things. So not same cartridge, but same caliber. Anyway, neither here nor there. Yeah, they're using stuff that really technologically dates back to Tsarist times, other than that one pistol. Yeah. Right. And they're able to be successful in large part because of they just got a lot of people, a lot of bullet sponges. And you know, rough terrain and a lot of people. And I don't think we can discredit that. I know it's kind of a very service level take, but that's just a fact. You know, there's yeah. just a lot of Russians, right? It's similar to Japan. Japan does not have the greatest military technology and we romanticize the pilots and things like that. But if you look at the equipment that they're using, I mean, katanas are cool, but you know, they're, they're <laughs> fighting, you know, it's a little bit different. Right. And yeah, the, so the, the the Soviets and, and the Russians, very, very interesting how they're fighting. I mean, they'll have some machine guns and things like that, but they're never going to be this feared technological force in the way that uh, in the way that Germany would be. Right. And America has the combination, like you said, of resources and technological innovation. And, you know, Britain does not have the technological innovation, but because the empire still exists at the time, they do have for the most part, access to resources. Britain, a very interesting one, I think, just because little tiny Britain up there, but they would have been crushed if they hadn't had the empire at the time, I believe, uh, to draw on. And and I think you could make the case that had Germany wanted to make the continent worse, they really could have. There could have been much more civilian uh, destruction. Granted, there was the blitzkriegs and all that, uh, England does get bombed, but it could have been much worse had Germany really wanted to. I'm not convinced that Germany wanted to use the technology they had in its full force, because I don't think that I don't think the idea was to you know completely kill all the Englishmen. Right. I I think that one way you can see that is the way that they actually use the two the different kinds of missiles that they develop. So they've got guided missiles and those are going to be used by both their navy and by their their air force. But the ones that are most famous are going to be the V1 and V2 ballistic missiles that they will use in the same way that in the first world war they sent zeppelins to bomb London. The purpose there of bombing various cities in the United Kingdom was not particularly because of the relative clumsiness of these weapons, certainly compared to modern missiles, was not to 
blanket the country with destruction in the way that the missile programs as developed during the Cold War later on <laughs> right. were meant to just wipe out populations. The The purpose was really more terroristic, you might say, mm -hmm. and, and, and random. And in this way, the Germans, who don't develop the same bomber technology, as we'll talk about in a little bit, that the Allies do, the Germans are not able to accomplish what the Allies are able to accomplish in Germany. But but like you say, I'm not sure they intended to. Right. I think they intended to terrify the civilian populace. I'm not saying that's good. I'm just saying it's a different purpose to terrify the civilian populace in order to create panic, fear, yeah. a sense demoralize. that yeah, to to demoralize. So with that said, and this is sort of germane to the air discussion. Yeah. Does the does this justify Dresden? Yeah, I, I don't I don't actually think anything justifies Dresden. <laughs> right. <laughs> and if and if you don't know about Dresden or, or some of the other bombings, and, and maybe you don't know conversely about the destruction of Coventry in England, you should find that out because I I I think that when you when you think about the Second World War, probably the bombing that English speakers are familiar with especially Americans, is going to be the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And, but it has its parallels with different ordinance in Europe. That is that we intend to destroy enormous amounts of civilian infrastructure and life in an effort to demoralize with technologies that while very, very clumsy, very, you know, rough compared to modern bombing technologies are not nearly so clumsy or rough as, you know, firing a missile from somewhere on the shore of the North Sea and aiming it generally in the direction of London. Yeah. And what what happens then is that we we can observe on all sides, but you know, honestly, just in sheer terms of destruction of life, more from the allies toward the Axis powers, both Japan and Germany, and to a lesser extent, Italy, a way in which the Second World War becomes about, and, and aviation is, is the main driver in this, complete and utter destruction of everything about life until surrender or, or just non-existence. In, in a way that is remarkable when you look at, you know, you, you go back just a couple hundred years before this in the whole scheme of human history, that's a very short time. And Europe is devoted to what are called cabinet wars, meaning mm -hmm. somewhat national, somewhat hot mercenary armies will fight according to very strict rules in a way that if possible, will minimize intervention in civilian life at all. And now with particularly aviation technology, we are able either via missiles, but much more effectively and destructively through long range bombing, we are able to completely obliterate cities possibly. Yeah. And that's going to directly influence how a lot of warfare is fought today. While we still have ground troops, a lot of our listeners might not realize just how much fighting is done essentially by a young soldier from a base in America with a video game controller. Yeah, yeah. Which, I don't know, ethically, it seems like large-scale ground war is somehow more ethically uh, permissible than 
bombing someone via a, a television screen or even flying the plane over yourself seems somehow more noble. Yeah. You know, you, yeah. You have very high are, casualty. Both, are, both yeah. are awful, but there, there's still a difference. It's kind of like bullying via text message versus bullying in person, right? Neither is really something we should condone, but there's something very, there's a, there's a kind of detachment that occurs. Yeah. Right. Which, which dehumanizes your target. Yeah. And, and, and that's something, you know, we talk about the inhumanity of war and everything. Well, it's, it's more inhumane than it's ever been because you never really have to look at your enemy now. And that's a result of the technology born here in this conflict in World War II. Right. There, there's a, there's a moment near the, near the beginning of Thomas Pynchon's World War II novel, Gravity's Rainbow about missiles because that's that that dominates i mean that's that's where the phrase comes from for the book's title but that's what dominates the experience of tyrone slothrop the main character because he's in london and the strange thing about this is that you hear it after you see it explode mm -hmm. and that that inversion I mean, you don't even have a warning right or maybe now today the drone appears overhead and is attacking you before you even realize it was <laughs> right. there, right? Is that when things come from the air, they are fundamentally terrifying to human beings in a way that they, because, because unexpected, because uncontrollable, and to some extent, because they're unassailable, that it, that does not have, does not really quite have a parallel with ground warfare. So you're dealing with a situation where the change also in the weight that aviation and and death from the air has in the second world war that it doesn't in the first and certainly doesn't before then and for obvious reasons that that is also a way to assess let's say the signs of the times so okay we are very advanced we are very technologically adept we can do things and communicate in ways we never have before including the the drone pilot sitting somewhere in a you know in a trailer in Nevada controlling the death of you know people in Afghanistan or something what what actually is it then to have advanced technology i i don't i i really don't know that this is cause for anything like hubris mm -hmm. which is usually what technology does with human beings the more they have the better they think they are the, the the superior the more advanced the more whatever positive adjective you could use they think they are what it practically results in however is the capacity to simply destroy enormous amounts of life relatively quickly or when the life is targeted like here's this platoon here's this russian platoon in ukraine being attacked by a drone or whatever to fight in a way that doesn't require you know knowledge of you know, right. by your prey of you at all. Right. So you mentioned the terror of seeing something attacking you from the air. Since we're coming up a little bit close to the end of the episode, let's talk a little bit about stealth then. Because these are one of the things, you know, a lot of things um, are detect are, are detectable yeah. even by radar in World War II. But Germany is looking to avoid that. So what do they develop? The Germans develop a very rudimentary version of what we would call stealth technology in uh, aircraft design, specifically bomber design, that allegedly 
allegedly, and I, and I think there's something to this for reasons we'll explain next week or next time we do at Astra, are, are, are very plausible because a lot of what is described as America, you know, using, you know, stealing Nazi technology when they want to be sensationalistic about it is really something more like <laughs> the way that we got our industrial revolution off the ground in America, which was we just kind of took, <laughs> stole, utilized, whatever, British, British developments, British technology, even, even down to the level of patents. What the Germans develop is something called the Arado E555, also known as the America Bomba. <laughs> yeah, I wonder who that's for. Uh, right. <laughs> because because the Germans the, the Germans realized something that maybe we haven't been sufficiently clear about, which was, you know, the Russians have a lot of people and the British have a lot of pluck and an and an empire of people to fight with them if they want, but without the lend lease program mm -hmm. starting in the 30s, in the case of the Russians, they from us, they don't really have anything. So absolutely. The, so the real key to to defeating the Allied powers in the Second World War is the destruction of American technology and especially American productive capacity. Yeah. So not necessarily that we are, you know, the the, the world's most brilliant people ever. Maybe we are. Maybe we're not. But we can make stuff to support everyone, kind of without a problem. There is an endless flow of of technology because there's an endless flow of cash and resources underneath it. Yeah, so the lend lease program. Yeah, something that a lot of people forget about. I mean, Russia most likely would have collapsed very early had we not been yep. supplying them. Right. And people don't realize that. You know, we're we're literally giving them stuff. I don't I don't know how it's lending and leasing. I mean, we get it back as surplus uh, <laughs> years and years later, but right. Yeah, we we are bankrolling and supplying in large part the Russians. Right. And I mean it <laughs> it worked if if your goal is to win that war. It's one of the interesting things if you if you watch any media especially from say China, England, whatever, they all want to take credit for winning World War II. So especially <laughs> the Chinese, you watch a Chinese World War II movie and at the epilogue everyone at the end will be like China fought and won World War II, you know, things like that. And yeah, we believe that we did it. And I think that that's probably true. It was, it was most definitely us, but everybody <laughs> wants to take credit for this thing. <laughs> and like, and see, I just now mentioned China. You guys forgot they were around, right? Right. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> like they were, they existed. And it's a little, I don't know. I can understand how the Chinese get defensive about it. Cause here's big giant China. And the little tiny Japan just rolling over them, essentially. You know, Japan really punched above its weight in World War II. Yeah. Until it didn't. But that's a subject for another day. The Japanese. But, you know, the, the, the Axis, you know, no, no matter what you do, going to be that World War II nowadays, especially always cast in this, everything Axis does is evil. Everything America does is good. But there are, all of the major players are are trying to develop along the same lines and are essentially doing the same thing right down to camps. <laughs> and so, yeah. you know, something that we need to, to be mindful of because the argument is often Germany has camps, ergo Germany bad. Well, we had just as many, if not more POWs 
And we shipped a lot of them over here. What does that mean? Or we even had American citizens that we yeah, interned. Yeah, we put American citizens in camps. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But it was okay because access bad, you see. <laughs> and and so when you're when you're willing to to talk about the war just in those kind of rudimentary terms, I think that even these questions of technology become become kind of clouded for us. Yeah. It was okay when we're developing it, but how dare Germany try to do this? Yeah. Because, or, or whatever. Because the reason that people think that we quote stole the stealth technology and and the the E five 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 was only of our concept. The second thing called the Horton two two nine there was there was an actual prototype built, as I understand, three of them, in fact. The thing the thing that the reason people think we stole it is because they do both kind of look like a B2 stealth bomber. And by stealth, we mean that they're able to frustrate radar surveillance. Yeah. It didn't get farther than that. And this is partly because the Germans simply don't have the, the capacity to produce these things that we would later take decades to reproduce. Yeah. And the question is, is it ethical to use uh, any intel gathered from them? And this usually, it comes up in military technology, but, it, yeah. but it's... But it mostly comes up in the question of military or of uh, medical things learned. And, and one of the things that is really over overblown is the amount of medical experimentation on the German side that we allegedly are using or using today. Everybody thinks that there were these major medical breakthroughs coming out of concentration camps, and it really doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, I mean, there are certain things, but it's not like every other document they find is some medical breakthrough. And so there's this great ethical question of, can we use this or not? Right. And I, and I think that that discussion comes later, you know, it's, it's sort of an armchair ethics discussion. It doesn't seem to be an issue at the time. You know, if we find something we can use, we're like, Oh, this is, yeah, this is pretty good. Let's, let's take it. Yeah. And, and then over time it becomes mythologized, right? Oh, there are these tremendous breakthroughs, that we have just, and, and you'll see it in um, a little, in another episode when we talk about, you know, rocket science and stuff, how much of that was actually a product of the Germans? How much of that was actually stolen? You'll see a lot of it really doesn't get developed until we're in America. And, and, and some of it gets developed independently. It's not like we found these magic Germans and they developed everything that ever happened. There are, <laughs> you know, there are a handful that are, are very influential well, you start digging into it and you say, well, it's not really quite what like, you know. Right. Yeah. It, this it, BuzzFeed it, article might have overblown <laughs> things a little bit. Well, it, it is remarkable that, you know, it, real horseshoe theory involves like left wing BuzzFeed journalist combines with inter with like literal Internet Nazi to believe that the Germans developed everything good about the modern world. <laughs> right. Sometime between 1933 and 1945. Right, and they were doing it, you know, uh, with with uh, occult books at right. the same time. You got to have that layer on top of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's another thing. I mean, I know we're getting a little bit in the weeds here, but the occult stuff, while there, well, I think that's indisputable. Way overblown, <laughs> as far as how influential that really was. Yeah. And and I think that it was certain, you know, high ranking, but lower than say the Fuhrer cabinet members who were into this. I'll put it that way. Um, that that's my personal take. I mean, from everything I've read and even looking at source documents, you just 
Yeah. Elites, and you, you're going to get degenerate elites in every culture. That's always been the rule. Yeah. And, but even at the highest levels, I don't think it's as widespread as people think. And I'm, and I'm willing to be corrected on that. I just don't think it's as widespread as people think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like, most Germans are boringly Lutheran or Catholic, and you just can't get around that. <laughs> I just, you know, take a couple examples. And I, this is not in the weeds because for reasons that have to do with history and not just not only our own personal interests, we we tip towards the occult at the end of each of these episodes. And that, that's <laughs> right. that's not an accident. We we didn't we didn't do that. It's actually <laughs> there in the sources, because what you're dealing with is, for example, you have uh, in the v, in the V1 and V2 programs out of Pinamunda, you have Werner von Braun, who is a Lutheran is is in fact a creationist so it seems like a relatively devout lutheran too. yes he is yeah yeah he's not a lutheran just in some sort of ethnic sense yes but but in in the instance of the america obama you're dealing with hermann goering who is in his own personal habits very degenerate and and somewhat related kind of like a jack parsons type of a person goering is also very interested in the occult and what I think is in, is important to understand, and, I, and what I hope we've inf, what we've emphasized in this episode, is that the Germans, both in you know leaders interested in weird occult things, as as well as in their interest in developing technology into destructive capacities never before seen, are not actually terribly unique. Right. And it's not, yeah, and it's not uniquely German. No. As, that's why we started with Parsons and moved over here. Right. <laughs> and, and I mean, what, what is maybe a little bit unique about the Germans is that because of their, their defeat in 1945, there is a hard stop to a lot of this stuff in a way that is obviously not the case for the Americans, for example. So that what is what is achieved with, say, you know, the first first image taken from outer space, I mean, it's it's very near outer space, but it is outer space, is taken from a V2 rocket. That's kind of a just a cool little thing to know, but that obviously can't go anywhere because with very limited capacities during the war and then defeat, you're not going that's not going to be developed. So the Germans, while extremely inventive in a purely technological sense, now face this extreme bottleneck as a group of people in 1945. Millions of them are going to die in 45 and 46 with what is essentially, I, I mean, I think this is a decent term to use, an ethnic cleansing of Eastern Europe of German populations that had been there since the Middle Ages. And the the push of them out of those lands, including most of what was Prussia, into what we now think of as Germany. Yeah. That that's that 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 pushes all of this development into this bottleneck. And now the question is not so much, are the Americans going to secretly let the Nazis off the hook? It's what's going to happen to that innovation that has occurred in this people who have been under pressure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you talk about the ethnic cleansing. I don't think the the audience might not be aware. I mean, you're talking about a time where you had uh, a couple of things going on. One, you had very reasoned perspectives on World War II, you know, contemporary perspectives saying, hey, maybe we should stay out of this or maybe we shouldn't engage at this level. 
you also had major newspapers with headlines that said all Germans must be removed. Yeah. All Germans must be exterminated. Right. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people today would agree with that because of the way the wars cast. They're all evil. So all Italians got to go. All Japs got to go. All crowds got to go. And that's that, that's how they would look at it. And and that's not a healthy way to, to look at these things. When you're talking about human lives here. Then kind of the smooth brain take would be, yeah, but what about the lives they took? Okay, so now we're talking about deaths and millions because of a whataboutism argument. You know, like, yeah. come on, guys, let's let's take a deep breath, you know, yeah. calm down, have some dip, and just think about this. <laughs> uh it's uh it's it's a strange thing. But but because World War II, especially and like no other war in our modern culture that we discuss. Um, is is cast in just these very black and white, very simplistic terms when you're talking about millions of people and the whole continent and more, really. Yeah. And I mean, that would be the same people who think that it was it would be good to exterminate all the Germans or would have been good to exterminate all the Germans in the 30s would absolutely balk if we said, let's destroy all of, I don't know, the Balkans or whatever. Pick, mm-hmm. you know, pick any place. Yeah, pick they a place, say, oh, pick a group. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They would go, oh, that's that's terrible. Well, that's kind of what you're endorsing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you think about World War II. Yeah. And just openly, people openly talked about this. It wasn't, you know, and I'm not trying to say, you know, I know Lutherans like to lean into the anti-German discrimination a lot, but there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, it, so virulent was the anti-German perspective that it irreparably changed a lot of our congregations. And a lot of you know that, but you, you you think of it just in terms of, yeah, so we had to start doing the liturgy in English, but it was much deeper than that. Yeah. It was much deeper than that. I mean, that's the most visible change, obviously, but yeah, I mean, th- what does that do to, to a congregation who, you know, ha- where your prominent members are regularly going back to Germany to visit family or regularly sending support? What, is, what does that do to, to that relationship there? What does that do to... A religion, whether you want to admit this or not, is and always will be inextricably tied to German culture. And we talk a lot, and we've talked about it, you know, you and I have talked about it publicly, like in old Word Fitly Spoken episodes or or whatever, about how Lutheranism does not have to be tied to 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 Germanism, <laughs> to coin a phrase, but yeah, yeah. But culturally it's just going to be. And you can't escape that. It's called Lutheranism. I mean, it's got a German name in it. So the question's <laughs> always going to be there. And so you're looking at your your typical LCMS congregation, which is predominantly German in World War One and then in World War Two. What, what does that do to your church culture? And you can say in Crow that, well, you know, we're we're churches are without borders. We don't believe in ethnophilitism, which is true, which is true, but that still doesn't take away the roots that are there, and that doesn't just dissolve the relationships that are there. That's still something you have to think about what it's going to do yeah. to a people. The same people who would say, well, they should have just changed, are the same people that will say, don't go into a new parish and immediately wear a chasuble and go to one-year lectionary because it's going to offend everybody. Well, what happened in between the two world wars is much worse, <laughs> and, and you endorse that. So, <laughs> Yeah, and, and the fact is that the LCMS is 
is relatively prominent in the American occupation of Germany and even some of the reconstruction of what becomes West Germany because of, yeah, yeah, because of its language skills, you know, so the, yeah. the chaplain at the Nuremberg trials is, is a Missouri Synod Lutheran chaplain and the Missouri Synod goes and distributes law and gospel printed in German by Concordia Publishing House to all kinds of German churches after the war. Yeah. Now yeah. apply your culture doesn't matter argument to that one. You could have just got Steve Smith, you know, go and see how he could do over there. <laughs> Steve, <So> the cult- <laughs> Steve is going to roll up in his, you know, suit and tie and, uh, you know, yeah. start a revival. Like it's yeah, not going to go over the like, same yeah, Dotsons are pretty nice. Yeah. You know, I mean, right. it's just the, how about that Volkswagen? Yeah. You have to, we have to be sober minded about this and just recognize the realities of culture and what, yeah. and what it means. And, and so it pulls churches apart, not, simply because of views on the war, but because of real and sincere bonds that they have. Right. I mean, it's family against family. Right. We talk about brother against brother in the Civil War. Well, you you have that in World War One and World War II. Yeah. And I, I think when you think about it that way, that that is a much better that's a much more productive way to think you've brought up a bunch of ethical questions, particularly in this episode. What is the expansion of technology actually mean? Well, one thing that it means is that if you can permit any kind of callousness into your soul concerning Japanese Americans in California, concerning German children in Dresden, concerning concerning Jews, concerning whomever, if you can permit that callousness into your soul in some regard, the the technological advancements, particularly in aviation, are going to allow you to act on that in a destructive way that has never been seen before. The ends justify the means at that point. Yeah, right, right. And it's never been easier. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think we deal with that. I I think we have become, in in, uh, the current age, very much dehumanized. Not just from people who are off in another continent, but even from the people across the street from us. Yeah. Uh, and so it's it's much more easy to have that kind of calloused conscience than it is than I, than I think it was even then. Yeah. You know, we think, oh, back then everybody was racist and they hated everyone. No, everybody actually kind of got along a little bit better. I don't think we were ne- really quite as polarized <laughs> in a lot of ways and in a lot of appreciable ways. Yeah. You know, you can look, ethnicities always have been in conflict. So that's not like it's unique to the 30s. Right. Yeah, right. But now people will, would go to war along political lines, which of course that's historical as well. But people would, people would go to, people would drone strike a neighbor over a Marvel versus DC today. Right. Yeah, that's what we're saying. Yeah. So so you yeah. can take conflict and and technologically you can expand it to every realm of life now. Yeah. While keeping your distance from that man and his humanity, his family, whatever. Exactly. It is that you're going to destroy. Yeah. And and you know, we will sever relationships and burn bridges over the pettiest of things today. Yeah. There's always been examples of it obviously since time immemorial, but today it's it's common. It's seen as a virtue. Yeah. Right. Oh, I've cut my dad off because he still watches Fox News. Well, he's toxic. That's toxic. So yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, he was always working and didn't love me. So therefore I'm gonna, you know, throw him in a terrible nursing home. Right. Whatever Medicare can cover, that's what he's gonna that's, that's what he's right. getting. That's or right. Social Security, rather. So all right. So coming up on the end of the episode, yeah. uh, any any final thoughts for the folks at home? 
Yeah, so we're trying to set up in the next Ad Astra episode the idea that the the various operations run by the Soviets and the Americans, respectively, in order to use German technology and German scientists after the Second World War, is not is not in fact some sort of comprehensive explanation for everything that occurred. But it is taking this incredible development made by the Germans and then exporting that and therefore vastly accelerating what the Soviets and the Americans were respectively already trying to do. Right. Very good. All right. Well, we'll be we'll be coming back to this subject in the near future. This has been a brief history of power. Colonel Grills and Adam Kuntz, you know where to find us. A martyr's death, the hero's life. The theme for the 10th men's gathering being held this year at Lakeview Villages on April 4th to 7th. We are thrilled to have secured Pastor Brian Wolfmuller as our main speaker this year. Join 150 Christian men to learn how the martyrs of the early Christian church still preach to us with their lives, their lips, and their blood. Arrive as early as Thursday for a special Bruise and Cue session with Pastor Wolfmuller, or stay as late as Monday to watch the full solar eclipse, which will be directly over the villages. Visit mensgathering.us for more details and to register. We hope you can join us at the 2024 Men's Gathering, a proud supporter of A Brief History of Power. Are you interested in entering into or fostering a biblical marriage? If so, set aside May 3rd to 5th, 2024, and join other young Lutherans and keynote speaker, Dr. Adam Kuntz, that's me, for a conference on biblical marriage at Grace Lutheran Church in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Come and learn what it means to have a godly marriage, participate in the divine service, meet like-minded folks, enjoy fellowship, and even learn a barn dance. We welcome singles, couples looking to get married, the newly married, and families. If you're a young couple, bring your third wheels because you just might end up with a fourth. Don't hesitate and register today at whatgodhasjoinedtogether.ca. That's all one word, whatgodhasjoinedtogether.ca. Your marriage is worth a trip to the Great White North. Are you tired of people saying that you must accept the crumbling of Christianity? Are you looking for a place that hasn't embraced the new normal? A church that isn't taking the decline of Christian culture, families, and congregations sitting down? Are you looking for reverent liturgy and biblical teaching that proclaims the mercy of God and instructs you in holy living? Then visit Mission of the Cross Lutheran Church in Cross Lake, Minnesota, where people come for the beautiful lakes, but they stay for the church where we are reclaiming Christendom. Are you looking for a Christ-centered healthcare provider, one that values life no matter the stage, and knows that we are made in the image of God and thus have inherent regenerative abilities? Or are you a healthcare provider looking to escape the increasingly woke system that employs you? Direct eCare can help. We are a concierge telehealth company founded by a cradle Lutheran who takes his God-given vocation seriously. We offer our patients direct, unfettered access to our providers with unlimited, as-needed telehealth services for only $35 per month or $370 per year. We are currently able to provide care to patients in the state of Idaho only, but are actively seeking providers in other states that would like to partner with us to start their own direct e-care clinic. Whether you are a prospective patient or an interested provider, you can learn more at www.directe-care.com.